Honey, Riley Esno, Nindijnikaz. I'm Riley Esno, and you're listening to Red Surgeon. Content warning, this conversation includes discussions of anti-Black racism, enslavement, colonial, and lateral violence. Today, we'll be talking about Afro-Indigeneity, the long-standing relationship that Black and Indigenous people have, and current tensions in community. I first want to dive a bit into a historical account to set the stage for the discussion that we'll be having for the bulk of this episode when we are joined by some lovely guests that I'm very excited about. So off the bat, I think the relationship between Indigenous and Black people is significant for, you know, so many reasons. But one that I think comes to mind um, especially is because there are a lot of systems of oppression that both Black and Indigenous people are implicated in. So for Indigenous people, of course, colonialism entailed a violent forced displacement in order for the colonizers to steal lands and resources. For Black folks, the colonizers' desire to use those lands for production also meant violent forced displacement and stolen labor for that production. I feel like I need to pause here to emphasize that this is true across North America, not just in the U.S., yes, in Canada. It is always wild to me how many people don't realize that colonizers enslaved both Black and Indigenous people here, too. Canada's reputational PR is successful. Yet again, it is wild. So neither people have benefited from the massive wealth that has and continues to be generated from that displacement and theft. Both of us feel the intergenerational consequences of that displacement and theft, as well as the continued colonialism taking place. And, you know, we see this in basically every negative outcome statistic, where you can be pretty sure that Black and Indigenous people are each disproportionately represented demographics. Notably, of course, we are both some of the most targeted and surveilled demographics among police and within carceral systems. In Canada, only 3.5% of the population identifies as Black, only 4.9% as Indigenous. And I note that there was no data, I could find at least, on the number of folks who identify as both Black and Indigenous. Despite how relatively small each group is in relation to the total Canadian population, the percentage of Black folks who are serving federal prison sentences is more than double their population— For Indigenous folks, it is almost seven times their population. And this is not to mention the rates of being stopped or dying by police, which is also ridiculously higher for both than what, say, white folks face. And all of this, again, is that colonialism, it's agent white supremacy in action. Our oppressions have always been bound, but so too have our co-resistances to them. Indigenous and Black folks have always known this, and it's why there is such a long and rich tradition of anti-colonial and abolitionist organizing between us. Here, I'm reminded of the Native Alliance for Red Power and the Black Panthers. 
We know that the 1960s were a notable period of political organizing, dissent, and social transformation. And this is true across borders. NARP first came to life in what is currently called Vancouver by a small group of indigenous people, primarily women. One of the first gestures of solidarity that NARP made was directed at the newly formed Seattle chapter of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, located just a few hours south of NARP's base. NARP reached out to, the bil- to build a relationship and offer solidarity. The group would distribute the Panther newsletter titled The Black Panther to their networks, help raise money, and support the Black liberation struggle. Representatives of the two organizations would get together to discuss a basis of unity and learn from one another. Out of this, NARP established their own political platform expressed in its eight-point program, which was consensually borrowed and adapted from the Panthers' 10-point program. This story is just one of many that details how both of our fights for liberation became richer because of friendships and co-resistance. In the mid-70s, Stokely Carmichael, a veteran activist of the struggle for Black freedom, very publicly attended the trials taking place in Minnesota, where Indigenous activists, part of the American Indian movement, were being charged for their part in the occupation of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, where they stayed for 71 days. Carmichael said here, one of the clearest descriptions of the common ground is one on which Black, Red, and all oppressed people can stand. You can find so much commentary about this solidarity in the works of Black and Indigenous leaders and thinkers, including Malcolm X, Audre Lorde, W.E. Dubois, Lee Maracle, Charles Eastman, and Laura Cornelius Kellogg. However, as Audre Lorde tells us, solidarity is not easy. This rich history of collaboration does not mean we have always been perfect allies to one another. I think of the way some Indigenous people continue to call Black folks settlers, for example, a title that is so inappropriate, so harmful, given how Black people's relationships to these lands are far more complex than that title implies, and they have not been afforded the same power and agency that we know, for example, white settlers have. Or... When the Black Lives Matter movement took off in 2013, it wasn't long before some Indigenous people started to co-opt that language and insist Red Lives Matter or Native Lives Matter. Instead of amplifying the messages and struggles that Black people were voicing, many Indigenous people tried to find ways to capitalize off of that movement to service our own needs. These are conversations that are certainly more difficult to have than reminiscing on the friendship between Black and Indigenous revolutionaries of previous decades, but they are nonetheless necessary, an obligation. If our liberations are bound such as they are, we can't afford to sow harm against one another like we often, too often do. We have to be better kin. And this is an important point. I want to harp on the word kin. The relationship between Black and Indigenous people is also not just confined to related but still separate instances of political organizing. We are also more than that. We are relatives. Since we've shared these lands for hundreds of years now, we have been married, we have kids, we've grown up alongside one another in community. In Canada, I think, for example, of Nova Scotia, where there are over 50 historic African Nova Scotian communities, And according to the Black Cultural Center of Nova Scotia, the province is home to the largest Indigenous Black or Afro-Indigenous community in Canada. 
One way those relationships began in Nova Scotia, at least, began following the American Revolution. In the 1780s, many black folks were promised land and freedom from enslavement by the British crown in exchange for fighting for Britain during the American War for Independence. Those black folks are often referred to in history textbooks as black loyalists. After the British lost the war, those thousands of black loyalists fled to several different places, one being Mi'kma'ki or Nova Scotia. They never received the land they were promised. They also found harsh conditions such as starvation, exploitation of cheap labor, severe winters, shortages of food and clothing. And this is where the Mi'kmaq made relationships with those black folks who suddenly found themselves in new territory. Oral histories talk about how the Mi'kmaq would help the black uh, folks figure out what to hunt and fish in areas throughout Nova Scotia. They married, they built community together. And as such, Afro-Indigenous people have been here for far longer than Canada has ever existed. And this is just the story of one territory at one time. Again, though, these relationships don't mean that we are always good relatives. Anti-Blackness is a very real, very dangerous disease that many Indigenous people have internalized over the years of colonization. Afro-Indigenous people are some of the first to be invalidated whenever we have intercommunity conversations around belonging. We can do the colonizers' work for them of tearing down our own relatives, and we do it often. It's complex, it's difficult, it's messy, and I think it's one of the most important conversations to be having. With all of that said, I'm so happy to have here today two amazing Afro-Indigenous educators that I am constantly learning from, Joy Henderson and Shanice Steele. Woo! (laughs) They are always bringing critical perspectives to so many inter- and cross-community conversations that I want to tackle with the show, and they are also just very kind and lovely. I am excited that they were able to make the time. Welcome to Red Surgeons. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. Yay. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be having this discussion and dig into all the juicy parts. <laughs> yeah, that's what I hope. So good. Okay, so in the first part of this episode, we tackled a lot about the historical relationship that Indigenous Black people, uh, Indigenous and Black people have, especially instances where we've been in each other's, you know, strongest co-conspirators. However, I also want to talk about where we are in the current moment and specifically where challenges lie. I think it's important to recognize that um, the longstanding relationships that Indigenous and Black people have, but that isn't to overlook the way that we don't always, you know, live up to those relationships. And so with that in mind, um, I want to start by jumping right in and asking, what do you think are the most pressing or underserved conversations happening right now related to indigenous indigeneity and blackness or Afro-indigeneity? I think like for me, the conversation that we're not having is like the nuance of this relationship. And in particular around the fact that 
you know, oftentimes folks talk about the U.S., right? They're like, there's so much history on Black and Indigenous relationships in the U.S. We don't have that in Canada. And it's not that we don't have it. You already went through all of that historical stuff, right? But it's the fact that these relationships are different depending on where you are in the country, right? So in places like Ontario, where you have a huge influx of Caribbean and African migrants and immigrants and refugees, um, that relationship between Black and Indigenous people is going to look different and how we see kinship and how we see relationship to land and how we see colonization, right? A lot of our communities are coming from places that have been or are continuously being colonized by Canada. I know when my grandmother left Trinidad in the 70s, Trinidadians were bombing Canadian banks because they wanted Canadian imperialism out of Trinidad, right? There's, there's that story of that. And so when we're talking about colonization and the relationship to Canada, it's going to look different for those those Black communities in Ontario, in the same way that it'll look different for Afro-Indigenous communities on the East Coast in places like Mi'kma'ki Territory, right, where that relationship has been happening for over 400 years. Or in the prairies, where you saw a lot of Black folks coming up after the Civil War looking for places of safety and rest and a, a place to call home, right? And what were those relationships? And I know that might sound like, okay, that's a historical thing, but how has that influenced the relationship now between Black folks in the prairies? Or when you're looking at places like Vancouver, like British Columbia, where one of the first governors of British Columbia was a Black man and had invited Black folks to find safety in Vancouver, right, in British Columbia. So what has it meant for that long history of Black folks being there? Or in Nunavut, right, where we're seeing an influx of African migrants to the north. All of these relationships are going to look different. And I think folks are looking for this very like uniformed conversation around Black indigeneity in Canada in the same way that you have it in the U.S. And not to say those nuances don't exist because there is a, a large migrant, Black migrant population, immigrant population in the U.S., but not to the extent that we have in Canada, right, where the majority of our Black folks are recent or in, within the last two generations, immigrants or migrants or refugees. Right. And so we're not going to have a uniformed understanding of that relationship because it's different and it's different based on where you are. And it's different based on the historical context and the contemporary context. And so I wish people would. I think the conversation that I think is underserved or we're not talking about enough is the fact that we're not going to have a uniform story. And my story of being black and native or Afro indigenous is not the same as Joy's. Right. My father is a recent black immigrant. Um, and we can have a conversation about Black indigeneity, which I think is another conversation we don't have enough. Um, but my dad is a is a recent immigrant from Trinidad, right, where Joy is someone who is generationally Afro-Indigenous. So my relationship to that conversation is different, right? So it's I think it's just recognizing and understanding the nuance of the multiple stories that Black um, Native or yeah, yeah, no, that's killer. Uh, Joy, I see you nodding along to like yeah. how much of what Shanice is saying. Oh, for sure. And uh, definitely Shanice and I have had this conversation a million times. And so I think over the span of like, what, three or four days, Shanice? <laughs> so um, yeah, so I am multi-gen, um, Afro-Indigenous. And so and my family comes from Lakota Nation, which, you know, is a nation that spans Canada and U.S.'s border and predates that you know imaginary invisible line and nuance is so important and it's not what we're seeing and we're seeing a lot of these conversations happening on social media and people are being informed by you know a pulpit versus a discussion which is 
I don't know, you know, I'm going to pan indigenize for a minute, but I don't know any nation that like says one person speaks and we all kind of take that as gospel. That kind of seems very uh, Judeo-Christian to me in that sense. Um, and so I'm seeing like also just a lack of involvement in these discussions. Like, you know, you had this discussion, just this report come out of Queens and I'm like, who were the Afro-Indigenous people involved in this discussion? And I'm willing to bet that there wasn't too many people there, right? And there's no transparency around that. And so now we have a set of guidelines or metrics that automatically, you know, sets off alarm bells for a lot of multi-generational Afro-Indigenous people. And for a lot of like, you know, I guess first-gen Afro-Indigenous people, because, you know, we're not necessarily based on the almighty status card or, um, you know, we don't necessarily have a direct uh, connection to, you know, the res, which has somehow kind of been held up as this traditional land now. I'm like, since when is, you know, traditional, what's traditional about a reservation? Like, this is not, you know, I don't understand how we got to this. Like, it seems like we're kind of on a backswing on the pendulum to kind of go very pure, like, you must have like a living Indigenous ancestor. And I'm like, okay, so what is that mean like what what happens when my indigenous you know family is black right and then people don't have an answer for that they're like i'm like yeah exactly right like i just met someone and they're from mcmaggy and they're eighth generation afro-indigenous and i was just totally blown away and you know amazed i was so happy because i think like my family goes back four or five generations but like eight like holy cow that's amazing and i immediately just got goosebumps i still have goosebumps right to have that kind of depth and culture and so and i you know i also really just need to kind of touch upon the fact that like you know the way the conversations are going and they're going to be clear they're going very anti-black right it's not just affecting Afro-Indigenous people, you know, our Black kin are watching, right? And I've had so many Black friends say, what the hell is going on? I thought this person was one of our allies. I thought this person, um, they're like, and they're saying they're being really anti-Black. I'm like, yeah, they are, right? I'm like, I don't know what to say because, you know, and so I'm like, how can you, and then at the same time, these people will try, they'll go post something, you know, from Desmond Cole or something on Twitter, you know, I'm like, you can't be a good relation to black people without being a good relation to Afro-Indigenous people because believe it or not, we talk. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, And yeah, you know, one of the first places I go to for support is going to be my black kin. And they're like, the hell is this bullshit? Right. I'm like, mm hmm. Yeah, I know. Right. So, uh, yeah, those are just kind of a few of my touch points that's kind of circulating through my mind and have been for the past what month now i guess <laughs> so with this last flare up yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like that there's so much to dig in to there i'm like popping off in my brain i know that you mentioned at one point the the queen's report and so for folks who are listening who might not know right is that queen's university in an attempt they say to tackle like indigenous claim identity fraud uh created this basically list of guidelines or protocols that they're going to be implementing for when they bring in new faculty or staff um to ensure that they're um to, to ensure that the folks that they're bringing in are somehow legitimately indigenous in their eyes. Um, and of course, though, um, as Joy so rightly pointed out, like that this automatically starts to get very anti-Black very quickly. Um, and 
I wonder, yeah, if you just want to if anybody wanted to pick up there because Queens is just one example, I think, um, of like this conversation that is happening not just in community but in institutions as well across Canada of, of you know, citizenship and belonging. And uh, I think obviously Black people are getting the brunt of that. I think, I mean, I'm just going <laughs> to, I promise I'll stop talking soon. You know, um, just kind of tying it back also to like things like urban indigeneity which is a Mm -hmm. huge issue which because a lot of afro-indigenous people live in cities because it's safer for us to live in cities for multiple reasons right and so and when i get worried about like things like the queen's reporters also like you know there is um expression saying lived as an indigenous person right and i'm like so what does that mean for those of us who are racialized differently right and so and where does that actually like you know because i'm racialized differently based on where i am right i go out to nova scotia and someone's asking me if i'm related to you know a scotian family a black scotian family in toronto people are like looking it's like okay so you know what kind of caribbean black are you right i'm like actually i'm american right and so i go down to the states i'm black it doesn't matter right and so and then you know i went out to winnipeg and I learned that I was indigenous pretty damn quick, right? And so it's just really where you're like racialized, how you're racialized, and you know, does that qualify as living as an indigenous person? Like the, you know, can a white person who's blonde hair, blue eyed, qualify as living as an indigenous person, but a black person cannot, right? Like it's just it's really kind of vague, and you know, it's like it's leaving a lot law up in the air and these discussions are not explicitly saying you know this is what it's like for afro-indigenous people and it can't be the same metric as it is for those who are euro-indigenous people right and so and i really me i want to see that explicit intentional language otherwise it is like a hot ass slippery slope down you know a greased hill so (laughs) i digress (laughs) yeah I definitely agree with you, Joy. I think, like, my my issue around this has been, like, when, when Afro-Indigenous folks or Black Native folks are, like, talking about the nuances of these conversations, it's being interpreted as, like, us not wanting to be accountable to Native community or us not wanting to answer where we're from. And, like, again, not to pan Afro-Indigenized, <clears throat> but I don't know a single Afro-Indigenous person, Black Native person, who hasn't been questioned throughout their life on their indigeneity. Like, to the point where a lot of myself and my friends have talked about, okay, we have our lineage, like, ri- like we're like, okay, we're going to go through with every single family name. And, like, as as an Indigenous person, in the same way as a Black person, like, I'm so proud of my family. So, yes, I'm going to say the last names of my family. And especially as a Métis person, that's how we recognize each other right like I'm a Brissette a Hirondelle a Delaron like you know that that those are my Métis families right um but the questions around like who we are and where we're from have started to like turn into less of like what is your kinship to me how do I relate to you and has instead become of more of like an, an accusatory question in the same way that it's been for a lot of us throughout our lives and I think when people are like, well, why won't you just answer where you're from? Or why won't you just show us the proof that you're actually Native? A, it goes back to a lot of the stuff for like Joy and other Afro um, Indigenous folks that are generationally Afro Indigenous. You might not always have that proof, right? You're not going to have 
again, the saddest part or a family member who lives on the res, right? Um, so you might, you might not have that to show that quote unquote proof. Um, and not because you don't have Afro-Indigenous family, but because you've been denied access to those spaces, right? And not necessarily always by that community. It might be the government. Because for a very long time, the government was not allowing Black folks or vis visibly Black folks, right, to identify as Indigenous, to move on to the res. Like, we need to understand that history as to why you probably won't see a lot of Afro-Indigenous folks generationally on the res. And so that that makes it hard, right? But it's like in the way that we're talking about this, we're missing that nuance of like Afro-Indigenous folks have been under attack and have suffered violence for a very long time. I know over the last two years, we've all been on this wave of like Black and Indigenous solidarity. And that's been great. But I'm going to be honest, that has not how it's been, always been. Like, I'm going to be absolutely honest about that. I will never forget being in school, sitting down with a professor at the time and being like, you know, I, we really need Black and Indigenous solidarity. And them looking at me and being like, Native people don't have time for that. Like, we have missing and murdered Indigenous women. We have land back. Like, we don't have time for Black issues. And so this is very recent. And even acknowledging Afro-Indigenous people is recent. Like, that is a very recent thing. I know I struggled for a long time in trying to figure out how I navigated being Black and Native. And if I could even honor both sides, like that was a that was a journey. Right. And so I think like that's my issue around it is like we're not we're not acknowledging those nuances. We're not acknowledging the fact that like for Afro-Indigenous people. Right. It's not simply just who is your kin and who's your community. There's a lot of trauma that comes with that. There's trauma of being denied from community. Right. There's trauma of not being connected to community because this idea that Afro-Indigenous folks also don't have parents and grandparents and family members that went to day school or residential school or 60 scoop, right? Like there's also folks who have, who have dealt with that in their families. And so, yeah, I think it's just the fact that we're not including that nuance when we're looking at things like the Queen's Report or other conversations around how to prove your indigeneity, right? Like what does it mean to be Black and Indigenous or generationally Afro-Indigenous in a country that refuses to recognize you? Because Riley, when you were talking about, you know, that history on the East Coast, right, that long history of Black and Indigenous people intermarrying, creating community, right? When Joy's talking about that eighth generation Afro-Indigenous person, why is that not recognized in the same way that we recognize Métisness? And I'm saying this as a Métis person. Why is that not extended to Afro-Indigenous people? And is it because of their Blackness, right? And not to say that they're Métis, because that's a very distinct community. But why is it that they're not recognized in their indigeneity? Why is it that they're not given a place at the table or a place to have this conversation? And that, I think, is where we really need to unpack that part of why we're sitting here and being like, Afro-Indigenous folks aren't really Indigenous because they're generationally Afro-Indigenous. But you would never say that to a Métis person because Métis people are generationally mixed Indigenous people. Right. And so why is that grace and that love and that kinship and that care not extended to people who are mixed with blackness? Mm. Oh, it's so I, I love everything that you folks are saying. I think it's 
so important. I'm like, it's reminding me of this one. Um, and, and like to maybe you, you pose like some questions that I think are like supposed to be pondered maybe a bit longer and, and in some ways rhetorical, but I was also like, it has to be just like the way that our communities, like, you know, like, uh, and indigenous communities specifically, like have just regurgitate white supremacy at so many turns and like, don't actually like, I don't know, realize it or so resistant to, to accepting that and like unlearning it like I just am really reflecting on the ways that our communities like are so steeped in white supremacy in so many ways and and um like how do we um I I would want to say like how do we even begin to like unlearn that and recognize that like without the labor automatically also going then to black indigenous folks um, and black folks to to like have those conversations and like take all the work and the harm that can come from having those conversations, right? Mm-hmm. You're gonna need one hell of a facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just I, <laughs> I just keep thinking about it, right? And I was gonna do like a big multi long tweet thread, Twitter thread about it, but I'm like, no, no, it's exhausting and. I don't know, like I was thinking about that, right? And just in terms of like, you know, and particularly with, you know, going back a little bit to what Shanice was saying, right? Like white people, you know, historically, you know, coming back to like, you know, a century old bloodline, like they had that option to opt out, right? We were pushed out, right? Whether through colonialism, whether through, you know, our relatives just like, you know, reenacting white supremacy, right? And so, and we see that still in our communities today, you know, we're all, you know, on Twitter about the um, Kamloopa uh, powwow and all the memes. and But it's just like, wow, we are so quick to just replicate these systems. And I'm just like, it boggles my mind, right? Because, I mean, like, I, I just, I don't understand it for the life of me. And, you know, and of course, then it just automatically kind of puts, like, you know, um, Afro-Indigenous people, you know, at the bottom of the pile, and we're just like, great, here we go again, right? And so, and it's very frustrating because, like, also, like, my organizing is centered around, like, Black radicalism, right? And so, and a lot of what I do in activism, you know, is with those um, those folks who have the similar viewpoint, and we're just all kind of sitting here like, wow, wow, y'all just like doing the white man's work for them, right? And I actually posted that on the Powwow website and I got like a thousand likes and I wasn't even expecting that, but I'm like, like what is going on and where is this disconnect? Because clearly people see it, but when we're organizing, it doesn't get translated up to that. And then, you know, you'll have people who like, you know, go on these, you know, pretendian shit posting sites and what have you. And then, you know, they'll like that. And they're like, oh, yeah, and it's just trash what's being posted because they'll like say so-and-so is a pretendian, but they're doing it from an anonymous account. But then on the same hand, it's like, you know, then they start screaming about like things like blood quantum. I'm like, but you were just supporting that. It's like, where is this translation? And there's this lack of connect, particularly around anti-Black racism training. And, you know, I notice in Toronto, like a lot of Indigenous organizations that work with Afro-Indigenous youth do not have anti-black racism training. And I'm like, you definitely need that. Like, and I'm just starting to deal with it in my own organization. I'm going to have some conversations with those of us who are working with, you know, Afro-Indigenous youth, right? Because outside of Nova Scotia, I'm pretty sure that we have the highest population in Canada. And I'm like, we cannot be around like these, you know, Afro-Indigenous young people and harming them. And you can't be 
organizing while enjoying like you know this you know anonymous pretendian hunter site and liking it because these youth are seeing that because everyone's on instagram right and so it feels like a lot of policy and decision making is being dictated by social media which lacks the nuance that the very needed explicit detailed nuance that we need and so i'm mm -hmm. very kind of boggled and frustrated by it yeah oh it's i want to turn it over to shanice again in a sec but i just wanted to say that like you're reminding me of this comment i saw and i for the life of me can't remember who said it but it was like why are we dealing with these like really yes super important complex issues of sovereignty and citizenship on Instagram as opposed to like, you know, in ceremony where uh, so so much of, you know, that is is I think, you know, historically has been dealt with is meant to be where we can make resources so that it is possible. Um, and then we and we don't. And like it reminds me also of a quote Leanne Simpson said about how um, one of the biggest problems that she saw with, you know, organizing around I don't know more was the way that these relationships were taking place in almost exclusively an online setting sometimes and how it so contributed to fickle solidarities between um, everybody and fickle relationships and that n people weren't investing in actual um, real meaningful relationships, not to say that those can't be made online, but that they they weren't in many cases. And um, our, our, our movements, our communities all suffered for it. Um, so I think that that's like so astute. Um, yeah, that's that's a lot of ideas out there. Shanice, what are you thinking? Yeah, you know, I think, like, whenever someone ta is asking me, like, why is there so much anti-Blackness in, <clears throat> in the Native community? And I'm like, well, we can talk about the historical context, and we can talk about residential schools, and we can talk about all of these things, right? But the reality is, is, like, some of this is stuff that, like, we've learned over recent years, right? That we've taken in over recent years. Like, I've seen Native folks quote Black-on-Black -black crime, right? Like, that. <laughs> That is something that has been used. And that's a recent, not to say it hasn't been talked about historically, but that that phrasing of it is a is a recent phrasing, right? And so I think the problem is, is again, and I say this all the time, people think that we can just throw Black and Indigenous folks into a room and it's going to be a kumbaya moment and we're all going to hold hands and sing. And like, that sounds really lovely, but this over-romanticization of our relationship is the root of the problem, right? Is the fact that we're not acknowledging the harm that's been done. And again, I'm not gonna like negate the fact that black folks may have caused harm to indigenous people on these lands. Like that's a that's a reality. I'm not going to sit here and say it's just been native folks, right? Like black folks, because of the ways in which Canada has used us to perpetuate settler colonialism, we have unfortunately caused harm in ways that we might not even recognize, right? And so that's also on our part in being like, how do we address this and acknowledge it and come honest to the table? And so I think that's part of the problem and one of the things that needs to happen around like, how do we, how do we eradicate the anti-Blackness is being honest about the fact that it A, exists and B, that we're still continuously perpetuating it, right? And I think it also goes back to like the dehumanization of each other. Like we have dehumanized each other through the ways in which we've like interacted with each other, but the ways in which we've received information from colonial powers about each other, right? And the fact that like, I I have a friend and, and we were talking about anti-Black racism and she, she goes to me and she's like, oh wow, I've never thought about it. There's 
there's a little black native boy on my resin. People are really mean to him. And I never even considered like, that's what it was. And I was like, because you didn't see him. Like you didn't, you, you saw him, but you didn't see him. Right. And I think that's part of the problem is that we don't see each other, like actually see each other as humans, as kin, as people in relationship to each other. And like you've talked about that, there was a point where we did, right, especially during the 70s. And I think I saw some really funny meme and someone was like, oh, black people haven't black people haven't talked about anything real since the civil rights movement. Right. And of course we have. But it was the joke about the fact that the way in which we're talking about liberation and activism now in this like contemporary way and how it's been extremely online has removed those connections right those in-person connections when you think about organizing back in the day it was a bunch of natives or a bunch of black folks or a bunch of black and native folks in some room in some dingy hotel they shouldn't have been in because they had to do it on the low because you didn't want the government to know like there was but there was a sense of like we're actually like we're fighting for our lives and not to say that we don't feel that now of course we do right but there was this like real sense of like we're in this room that we should not be in having a conversation that we should not be having to fight for our lives. Right. And now I think because social media has become such a big thing, it's really easy for us to throw these concepts out online and not talk about the nuances and not have that very real fear. Right. Like I can post online and be like, ah, black liberation, let's burn down parliament. And I can go about my day. <laughs> like I can, I can genuinely go about my day. I probably talk about burning down parliament often. I've even said it in the justice department. I was like, I'm the radical one. I want to burn down parliament. And we all giggled about it. But if this was the seventies and I, as an Afro indigenous person was like, I want to burn down parliament. I would have been arrested, hauled out, put into jail in that very moment. Right. And so it's like, I think because everything has been so much online because we've dehumanized each other, because we've become desensitized to our own violence, not only at the hands of the, of the government, but the violence that we enact on each other it's easy for us to like really get in this moment of like, I don't see you and I'm going to just attack you. And I'm just going to hide behind these posts. And I'm just going to go on these rants because you're not a real person to me. You're just another person or another being behind the screen. Right. And so for me, it always goes back to the dehumanization that we've done to each other of like, you're not a real person because you're just someone I'm talking to online. And what does it mean to actually be in solidarity with someone that you have to look face to face to that you could possibly die next to? Right. Like that's something that I think that we we have to be honest about. And that's why you see liberation movements in other places in the world. I think moving faster than what we see in Canada and even in the U.S. Right. Is because people are in rooms having conversations face to face, unpacking the trauma face to face. It's not people online ranting about how they feel and myself included. Right. Like I'm including myself in this. It's very easy for me to get online and rant about how I feel about something. Right. But what does it mean to be in the room next to a person? And I remember like a, a few years ago, I was at, there was an AFN meeting in Ottawa. And I remember being in a hotel room with a bunch of other natives. And we were like, okay, we're going to like go to a national park and we're going to set up a camp and we're going to bring up youth and we're going to refuse to leave. And like, we're taking land back. And then the next day we all went on our ways, right? But what if we had a stuck with that? In the same way with Black Liberation, like we're all in a room. We're all planning this really big thing. And what if we actually stick with it versus ranting online and going about our days? So I think like, yeah, when we're talking about unpacking anti-Blackness, when we talk about moving forward as kin, like what does it mean to make a plan face to face and go with it versus online screen to screen and forgetting about it in 20 minutes? Mm. 
Yeah. There's so much like accountability and um like longstanding commitment like are all things that are like I think come along with like this this idea that you pose for us or this challenge of like, you know, what if we did that? So, yeah, no. I wonder if it's like maybe an oversimplification, but do you think like to the question of how how do we heal all this again that it's that it's through the it's through relationship. I don't know if it could be anything else, but I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to hear joy. What are you thinking? Well, you said it, like you said the word accountability, like, and accountability, you know, looks, we've come to think of accountability as like, you know, calling each other out online. And it's just like, that's not necessarily accountability because when you're calling people out or in, you know, you still have to be accountable as to how you do it, who you do it to, whether you have your facts, right? And so, like, again, with these, like, pretendian uh, hunter pages, right, they'll be calling people out. I'm like, yeah, but you're talking about someone that's not even true, right? And so, and it's just like, where's your accountability? Where's your connection to community? Where is, like, who are you to do this, right? And so, um, and, you know, to, like, you know, I love online culture and I hate it. And so, you know, it's just, it's really, you know, a double-edged sword, right? I've made amazing connections and had wonderful discussions. But, you know, as we, you know, we're not moving out of the pandemic clearly, right? But as we think we're moving out of the pandemic and starting to move face to face, you know, there is something to be said about that face-to-face -face connection. Like I've been chatting with Shanice online and, um, for a little bit and then you know we met you know last month and it's like oh okay we're friends now right <laughs> like we're really actually actual friends right and it's you know and there is like it's just like this lack of disposability of people when you meet them face to face and you become in community with them and we've been seeing online lately you know people are just disposing of each other right with like long you know year two year three year long relationships and organizing online but you know that those relationships were just severed like that because you know of resentments or you know an ideology that no longer matches and it's like even if I had that with my friends and we do that like as we grow older and what have you you know obviously your friends and you know the people you're in relationship and community with your kin you know, you don't necessarily agree anymore, right? You grow apart, but there's still that kind of accountability to not like, you know, trash them or, you know, just like, you know, dispose of them. And so there's that, you know, certain something about like being in community and you can do that online, but it's a lot harder for sure. Right. And so, cause I mean, I've done it with, I have many friends that I haven't met yet, but, you know, feel comfortable to say, hey, this ain't it, right? And not throw them away and vice versa. I would hope that they would be able to say the same to me, right? And, you know, if I'm getting my conspiracy hat on, right? It's just, it's kind of another level of colonialism and severing those relationships, right? And so, and when you talk about like, you know, black and indigenous communities, like since like 1526, right? Colonial colonialism, at least in, you know, what we know as um, the US and Canada has been working to pull apart these communities because they needed, you know, to eradicate, you know, non-black indigenous communities, you know, for the land and they needed to create black folks to work the land, right? And so, and they're like, oh shit, those two aren't working together because we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in really big trouble if people start collaborating, right? And so, you know, online 
presents another challenge of organizing and connecting um, and that there are really no set um, accountability measures that aren't horrifically toxic right and so i mean people have done it on a micro scale but like you know the minute someone says something's wrong something wrong right we're just like we're all on and i'm like ah cancel right and so i myself included i've participated in that too right and so but you know and folks that we have relationship with again it's harder to build that online right i would hope that you know we wouldn't be so close to like you know canceling someone or you know saying oh you know just off the tip of our tongue because we don't like them oh you're a pretendian right or because you're black you're a pretendian right this is the humanization process you know is so much easier to do online and actually face to face and it's just it's you know again i love online culture um i think there's a way through it i haven't thought about how there's a way through it yet but you know the hopeful part of me and i'm a capricorn so it's a very small hopeful part but you know the hopeful part of me is like no there's got to be a way through it but at the same time yeah face to face being in strong connection with each other you know as you know <laughs> i don't know as originally intended quote unquote or as like you know our ancestors did it like there's something to really be said for that and we've kind of strayed away from that for a myriad of reasons, right? So, yeah, accountability and face mm. accountability. Yeah, I, uh, like, I turn, when we talk about, like, online organizing, it's something I think about a lot and, like, what it does to our relationships. And I turn to, you know, so many disabled folks, for example, who have, like, long been, like, forced to, to like, build most of their relationships or many of their relationships online by being, like, you know, structurally excluded from much of our face-to-face -face society. Um, and, like, I think, like, but with that comes, like, uh, like very real, um, like, the environment is conducive to real commitments to making those relationships something. If they're going to be online, they are, they are, real and they're everything and they're whatever and they're not that disposability and that um you know like fickleness that we've been so talking about that you can just close your screen and move on with your day um i uh so i wonder also what lessons perhaps can be gleaned um from those communities and those worlds and what we could you know take into our own beyond just the conversation of um indigeneity and blackness too and like crossing those boundaries so something uh poking out but i i want to be also cognizant of uh a little bit of time we've got here i don't know if folks if you have anything in your mind feel free to just shout at me but also um i wanted to ask if you can think of an example or a story um where you think we've been at our best um uh and it could be of just like a moment <laughs> and it could have been maybe that conference you guys were just at and you know talking about all these things um but i think maybe that there's some lessons or models to be to be had in there and so i was wondering if you'd be willing to share yeah i think for me and, and this is just going to tie a bit back into what joy had just said like when um when i'm thinking about the moments that we've been at our best right and like to tie in that dehumanization part like i think about and this is like tying into the U.S. about, but when I think about, you know, there's the civilized five nations, right, that own slaves and the ways in which they dehumanize black people and like owning them. Um, and then I think about like the Tuscarora Nation that was intermarrying with black folks so much that other nations were getting upset. Like they were integrating black folks into the nation so much, right, that it was even changing the ways in which Tuscarora people were looking. 
And I think that's a moment where I'm like, oh, that we were definitely at our best in that moment, right? That like even during slavery, even when other nations were choosing to or were forced to own slaves, like here was the Tuscarora nation that was like, absolutely not. Like these are our kin and we're going to marry them and we're going to love them and we're going to give them clans and names and kinship and all of these things, right? So like that's kind of like a historical thing. But I think about that, right? Like I think about in the moments when the rest of the world is telling us to dehumanize each other, who are the people who aren't doing that? And how are we showing up, right? And what and what does that look like? Like those are the best moments for me. I think one of the most profound moments that I I have had in my life, and there's like two of them. One was during the Black Lives Matter uh, TO Tent City that had happened in Toronto. And was that in 2016? You know, I'm not great with years. It was it was in the within the last, I think it was 2016. It might have been 20. Yeah, 2016. And I was down there and it was just seeing like indigenous folks showing up for black people and like in not just ways of like I'm bringing my body, which for for racialized folks, for me to say I'm putting my body on the line with you, like I am willing to face. Oops, sorry, I'm getting I'm getting a call. Let me decline that right there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I'm about to say this real profound thing and start to get a call. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but to say that like I'm gonna put my body on the line with you right to say that I think is such like a profound and powerful thing that we oftentimes don't necessarily acknowledge what it means for racialized folks to physically show up to protest together um but it was the fact that they were bringing medicine it's the fact that they there was a, a group of of kids from Norway Cree House um in Manitoba who were there on a vacation and decided to or not a vacation, a school trip, and decided to come instead to Tent City and like make signs and take photos and spend time with Black people to say, hey, like we might be in Manitoba, but we're showing up for you here. Like we're here and we decided to make this detour. Like that to me was one of the most like profound things that I think I had seen. And also at that time, I was like, I'm doing a research paper on on Black and Indigenous solidarity in Canada. And like my professors were like, there is no history. And then here it was, like here it was in front of me, like visually seeing that as like a contemporary thing, right? And how beautiful that was. And then the other time I was in New York at the United Nations Permanent Forum and we had gone to this space that was organized by the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus and they had an Afro-Indigenous drum group. And it was these older Afro-Indigenous men, like these uncles, these granddads, just sitting there just like drumming and what it meant for me to see that as an Afro-Indigenous person to visibly see not just an Afro-Indigenous drum group but elders Afro-Indigenous elders right and how like other Indigenous folks were creating that space and like and what it meant to have Afro-Indigenous people there for other Indigenous people to say we see you right like I think those are the moments that we're at our best. And it's always going to be when we see each other. Like for me, it's always going to be those moments and they can be small, right? It doesn't have to be this huge, profound thing, but like any moment that we as Afro-Indigenous people see, or sorry, we as Indigenous people and Black people and Afro-Indigenous people, the moment we see each other, that's when we're at our best. 